Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad and with me is Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone, human and robots, um, and even some species of podcast listening animals. I'm cool with that, too. Um, in case you didn't know, my furry friends, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, and we have a lot of really fun stuff to talk about. Uh, actually, this week is all about high-performance vehicles. So, Ben, why don't you take it away? Tell me where you were this past week, and um, what was so much fun about it? I actually just got home yesterday from the Nevada desert, where I was hanging out at Spring Mountain Motorsports Ranch, a ranch where motorsports grows and runs wild and free. Uh, it's uh, actually the largest racetrack in North America now. They have miles and miles and miles of paved surface, which they can all connect together, or they can split it up into tiny littler tracks where you can run various exercises. They have a couple of driving schools out there that run all the time, pretty much uh, on, on regular shifts. And um, they're buying more and more land. I think they just bought another 500 acres. They want to have 15, okay. 15 miles of track, Sammy. So what you're saying essentially is that this track is actually pretty much a Megazord or a Voltron of tracks, of smaller tracks, that yeah. they just put all together into one big giant one? By their powers combined, they create a, a Megazord-like track. Okay, and, um And they're it, not done yet. They're getting, like, the extra, the final piece, like the crown Voltron special move, right? Well, you lost me with that part of the analogy, but I'm going to say <laughs> yes, because they are not done. But the reason I went there is uh, they've got a they they have a longtime partnership with General Motors. Ron Fellows has his Corvette driving school there, mm-hmm. and I've been there in the past for some Camaro events. But this time I attended for the Cadillac V Performance Academy, which is a driver training program that everyone who buys every American who buys a Cadillac CTSV or ATSV gets for free. They it comes with the car. All you have to do is pay your airfare to Vegas. And you get to experience this two-day program. If you're Canadian, you still have access to the program. You just have to pay for it. And if you don't own a V, you can also attend. You can pay for it out of pocket yourself if you want to do that. Um, What's interesting, though, I've been to a few. This isn't a new thing. I mean, as Sammy is going to reveal later on, there are... uh, (laughs) Teaser. Teaser. uh, There are a number of driver training programs that come with high-performance cars these days, especially in the luxury space, but not just in luxury space, because SRT offers a driving program at Bob Bondura's school in Phoenix, Arizona, and Ford offers a driving program with the Focus ST and the Ford Raptor, the F-150 Raptor, in, I believe it's in Utah. So these programs are out there. Um, Audi has a program. uh, BMW has a program. Uh... The, some of the programs actually travel around the country. They go to various tracks to make it more convenient for owners. But the Cadillac program is is different. And I didn't expect it to be different because I, I've been to a number of these programs. I've been doing driving schools for about 10 years now, trying to get better at driving. You're going to graduate, man. Uh, I don't know. I just keep changing my major. It's <laughs> it's really terrible. So many victory laps. You not, sound, in the, not, you, in the, not in the way that required on the racetrack. You sound like my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, it, the, the, the Cadillac program is different and I've been doing a lot of driving programs. Some of them manufacturer related I've done the SRT program, then a few others. Some of them are at the local regional level, you know, like, uh, clubs that offer driving schools, high performance days, 
uh, sorry, high performance driving events where they have classroom time. I've done autocross schools, the evolution schools one and two, and I've got a fairly wide um, sampling, I guess, of what's out there. And mm. the Cadillac program was not like any of the other ones I had attended for a number of reasons. The first is the way Cadillac has set it up. This is completely set apart from the instruction. But uh, Spring Mountain, is it's not just tracks. They actually have condos and homes built on the facility itself. And they're inside the track. So the cars are driving around you. you you're in your condo. You have a garage for your car or cars. It's really cool. It's a, it's a unique setup. And there are a lot of private tracks that have this. But... Um, at Spring Mountain, this is available to people who use the Cadillac program. So you get picked up at the airport. They drive you to your condo. You eat, sleep, and breathe racing instruction for two full days. And uh, they provide meals for you. It's it's a really end-to-end service. If you're doing the Cadillac program – sorry, if you're doing the Corvette program, the Ron Fellows School, you don't get this. It's, it's not nearly as um, uh, accommodating. You have to arrange for a lot of things on yourself, meals, travel, and um, – accommodations within Pahrump, which is the town in Nevada where it is. So that's that was cool about the Cadillac thing. But the, the instruction itself, uh, Rick Malone is the head instructor, the director of the program, and mm-hmm. it was the most focused instruction I've ever received at a school. Every single instructor, there were about seven of them, were on message all the time about the type of driving they wanted you to do. And that type of driving at the VA Performance Academy is essentially trail braking, or as they call mm-hmm. it, brake balancing, which means th- th- there's a couple schools of thought. There's more than a couple, but I mean, I, I feel like I'm kind of rambling here at this point. Sammy's being really quiet. I hear the creaking but of I'm, his chair. But I'm very excited to hear. Well, I mean, I want to hear how trail braking, um, what it's like in one of these cars that you're you're in. And that racetrack in particular is, um, well, I've been on it, I've been on a couple of uh, the configurations when I was there as well with Camaros, um, some some shorter ones. And um, trail braking is really effective in that because they have some really nice, um, some really nice corners, some really, really solid corners that you can see in anticipation of, you can take in kind of hot and the, and the trail braking, as far as I understand, will help you settle the car and get going um, through the through the turn is that uh, how how did they describe it and what did they teach you to practice uh, trail braking especially in these in these vehicles and which cars were you driving actually well it, it's not you know it's not a, a vehicle specific driving technique and yeah. um, that's something that was interesting about how they approached the driving we were driving CTSVs and ATSVs and we were driving on a one and a half mile track I think it was called I think it was the West Course if memory serves. And almost every corner was a late apex, mm-hmm. which it, for for trail breaking purposes, that's you know, even more important because corner corner entry is always important. But on a late apex, it's the most important thing because mm-hmm. if you don't get it right, you're going to be slow everywhere else. Uh, but but the trail breaking or you know light breaking on corner entry is not something that you'll find at a lot of driving schools. Most driving schools, when you first start out driving, and this is there's even people like Russ, Ross Bentley. Um, uh, the, that those types of driving gurus, they still teach this, is that you're supposed to brake in a straight line, finish your braking, yeah. and then turn. Essentially, yeah. you separate the turning input from the braking input. Whereas in trail braking, what you do is you begin braking maybe earlier than you would normally. You don't brake hard. You brake gradually, and you use that braking motion to settle the car, to put the weight on the front wheels, and to use that weight to help you turn in through the, to the apex. 
It's counterintuitive in a lot of ways, especially if you've gone to a million other schools that tell you to do something different. And, and one, especially if they tell you to do one thing at a time, break in a straight line, turn, and accelerate uh, as you unwind the, the wheel, which is the common, I think the common, you know, beginner entry starter level and, uh, approaching and, a corner. And not even beginner starter level. Like that's something that you'll you'll hear repeated over and over again. It's essentially dogma. Mm-hmm. Trail breaking isn't new. It's been around for a long time, since at least the late 60s, early 70s. I remember reading uh, Mark Donahue's book, The Unfair Advantage, where he talks about how trail breaking was viewed as like a dark art and everyone thought it was stupid in, in the mainstream of racing when he was, when he was trying to use it. Uh, but it, it's very effective. And there's lots of ways you can balance a car in a corner. You don't have to use brakes to do it. You can use, you know, maintenance, throttle, et cetera, et cetera. But the reason I'm making such a big point about this is because a lot of times you go to a driving school and there's seven instructors and they have seven different ways to get around the track. Right. And, and I'm not just talking about individual lines or um, preferences, but when they talk to you, they'll have their own views on braking in each corner. They'll have their own views on when you should accelerate, et cetera, et cetera. That was right. not the case at V Performance Academy. Each and okay. every instructor bought in to the message. They were all on point about brake balancing. It was everything they taught, whether you were talking to them in the classroom or one-on-one immediately after the track or even on the radio on the track itself. And I've never experienced anything like that before. And they were also relentlessly positive about it. It wasn't the kind of situation where um, they try to tear you down to build you up, which happens at some driving schools. Right, yeah. It, it it was very much a positive collaborative effort, and the way we went back and forth between classroom to track to classroom to track really helped build skills up over the course of the day. And I also want to point out that I wasn't just there with a group of journalists doing journalist stuff. Uh, they, Cadillac runs five to six groups a month through this program, and each group's about 12 people. So there were six journalists and six actual Cadillac owners. I mean, I'm an actual Cadillac owner too, but uh, it, these are people who went to the program because they bought the car. And mm-hmm. it was really neat to see them progress through it as well. Almost every single one of those people had never been on a track before. Interesting. So were they? how did they – did you watch their progression? Did you watch how they approached um, the corners at first um, and saw how they were being taught um, brake balancing or or trail braking? Well, sure, there was that, and but there were also we didn't just we weren't just on the track. We also had a number of exercises at the facility, mm-hmm. uh, wet braking, skid pad stuff. Um, we we did a really great exercise, which I've never done at any other driving school about late apexing, where they had a series of pylons set up. And you would drive to one pylon, but you were only allowed to look out your side windows to the next pylon, which was the apex. So you would have to drive okay. well past the apex and then turn in. And you would do two or three sets of, of these pylons, like two or three laps, and then they cover your windshield. With, what? Uh, yeah, with, uh, you know, like those, those uh, solar reflectors like you use to keep the sun out of a car. Okay. And you have to do the same exercise. Without being able to see out, see yeah. out your front window. That's because really cool. It was really cool because you don't need to see out your front window to do the exercise. And it also reinforces the fact that you should be looking at the apex and not where the car is going. Right. Because you should you look gotta, at – got to trust where the car is going because you're, you're currently like sending it there, right? Well, and yeah. You, you want to look at where you want then, to go, not where the car is going. You know what um, I mean? Because I, I otherwise otherwise you, you have target fixation, which is you're just staring at either what's directly in front of you or maybe the car that's directly in front of you. And who knows what kind of line they're using? I really like that because um, 
I uh, I have a tough time with like apexes. I see the corner and I and I have like almost like the instinct to just break at it, like it's a normal you know ninety degree turn or something like that. Um, the late apexes are a little bit a little bit uh, they have to be approached differently, um, and uh, and I I've been working on it in, at certain tracks in certain situations. So I'm glad to hear that they have a very proactive approach to this, um, and something that that kind of because it's not easy to approach the first time. Uh, a late apex corner and you will mess it up consistently and constantly until you you until somebody really points out the best approach well the human instinct is almost always to turn in early yeah that's that's what happens and it's hard to fight that so um i i had difficulty with the light breaking because you break so much earlier you break so much longer it's tough to determine how much you should actually be breaking mm-hmm. and until you figure that out you could find out that you've parked the car in the corner <laughs> and you're way 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 too slow and at that point there's not much you can do to improve on things like once you're once you've parked it's uh anything you do to go faster is just kind of going to ruin your lap mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's there's not there's not really a fix for that so tell, talk to me a little bit about these cars. Um, wh- wh- you drove both the brand new CTSV and the ATSV. Was there? Um, did they give you one first and then the other, or did they give you the keys to either one and whatever well, exercise was required? Well, owners drive what they own, right? So okay. if you're, in, I mean, for the most part, you don't have to. But um, if you're an ATSV owner, that's probably what you're going to drive on the track. And so we were able to just drive whatever we wanted to as journalists. Uh, what was interesting, though, is most of the time journalists are fighting over being able to drive uh, manual transmission cars. Mm-hmm. And the ATSV is offered in both a manual and automatic. CTSV is automatic only. Right. On the on the track we were on, the manual cars were a liability because the gear ratio is not as good. Okay. And you would end up – there were a couple of corners where there was no good – gear to be in you were and, either in too low of a gear and you're you've got, you're like bouncing off the rev limiter or you're too high of a gear and you're like not getting any 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 movement yeah so we had a, a couple of, we had a couple <laughs> of they'd actually brought out a couple of manual additional manual cars because they anticipated that our journalist ways would have us gravitating towards those and we did and then on the second day we asked them to get rid of them <laughs> and we all drove the automatics uh and i want to I want to stress, though, we weren't allowed to leave them in drive. All the cars had to be in... Um, Neutral? No, no. I mean they had to be uh, manually shifted with the pedals. Oh, I understand. And okay. they actually had a class... And I thought you it, meant bring, to, bring them to a stop, bring them to a break or something like that. No, we actually had a class and an on-track session, sorry, a, a, an exercise off the track that was just about shifting with paddle shifters. That's really, that's really interesting. And is there anything... Um, that you learned in this in this section of the class? No, not at all. But um, I'm sure for some, you know, you think that the kind of people who buy, I mean, the kind of people. Again, I am a CTSV owner. The kind of people who buy these cars are really gung ho about performance, and they've already been out on the street and they've like thrashed the cars around, and now they're like, okay, I'm gonna go to a track and I'm gonna thrash the car around there. But that's really not the case. There were people there who had not used the pedal shifters in their cars. And there was someone there who had never put the car in sport mode before because they were concerned about how it affected the traction control and stability control systems. They didn't know whether it backed them off to the point where it would be dangerous on the street, so they just left it in touring mode. And I think that that is an amazing 
an amazing realization that I never had that points to how useful a program like this is for Cadillac because these people are buying extremely capable cars and they might be intimidated or they might be worried about their safety in these vehicles if they were to drive them hard. So that's why they're showing up at the track. It's not because they think they're the next NASCAR star. It's because they want to get the most out of their vehicles. And you know what? That uh, that says um, a lot. I mean, these cars are kind of intimidating. This is a, a six hundred. The CTSV is a six hundred fifty horsepower or six hundred forty horsepower car, right? Yeah. It's it's powerful. It's fast. It's it's super fast, and it can do some speeds that will not only uh, endanger your license, but can endanger the lives of other people if you don't know what to do um, with that speed and how to control the car in that situation. Now, I doubt that you guys are putting serious high speeds uh, on this track, were you? Or did you guys see any any serious triple triple digits in terms of miles per hour? About 110 miles an hour at the end of the longest street. Wow, that is ve- that's actually really fast, I think. I don't know, that's twice the speed limit in some places. Yeah, and it's and, and you know what's interesting too is a lot of what we learned it's a cliche, but a lot of what we learned on that track can be used in real life, especially when you're talking about emergency situations where maybe you're in a low traction situation and you've never been in a car that's understeering or oversteering before. And mm-hmm. now suddenly, because you've taken this class, you don't panic. It's something that, it's a situation you've been in and you were in it in a safe situation and you were able to to figure out what you needed to do to, you know, right the car, get it pointed in the right direction and, and, and not panic. And um, that's a big part of being able to drive not just at in in a high speed event but you know the track is the safest place you're ever going to drive because there's never going to be anyone pulling out in front of you who ran a stop sign there's never going to be someone backing out of a parking spot directly in front of you it's mm-hmm. a controlled environment and it's the perfect place to learn how to do this stuff so that when you get out into the world which is absolutely crazy <laughs> you there's will... a bajillion like uh, variables on in the real world so. yeah there's there's no one on their phone on the racetrack you know what i mean mm-hmm. no one's texting somebody and it, it's it's people see it as a dangerous adrenaline soaked place but really it's not that and what was it like to be with these track can you talk to me about uh, what kind of uh learning tools these cars were uh i had a slightly different impression mm-hmm. than the instructors i i've always advocated learning on low power lightweight cars because i agree with that and i actually still prefer low power lightweight cars i think they teach you um a right way around the around the course yeah it's it's harder to cover up mistakes with horsepower i mean Mm -hmm. you can't just stand on it in the straight but from another perspective these instructors were talking about how they viewed these cars as momentum cars and in a way, all cars are momentum cars. Right. So you it, you can treat it as a momentum car if you want to and instruct it that way. And the amount of horsepower it actually has isn't really relevant. In fact, if you're teaching stuff like, you know, a big part of cornering using this braking balance method means you when you come out of a corner you can't overpower the rear tires by just standing on the throttle you have to as you said earlier unwind the steering to get going Mm -hmm. straight and accelerate while you do that well if you have a lot of horsepower and you don't unwind properly things can get ugly real fast you'll Mm -hmm. just you know just understeer the car so in that way it's 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 a useful teaching tool but um if i was gonna learn i mean i learned on a miata (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and I bought it for that purpose, but maybe that's just my personal preference. And these guys are pros, and they know what they're talking about. Anything you want to highlight with these cars? Anything that still surprises you about them? Not really. Um, the what was interesting, I think, was the CTSV is significantly heavier and larger, but I was able to 
walk away from the ATSBs if I wanted to or stay right on their bumpers. Conversely, um, the ATSV is capable of keeping up with the CTSV. It's all about how the cars are driven. I don't mm-hmm. think they, that on a track of this size, they don't necessarily have advantages. The instant on torque of the V was great. Sorry, mm-hmm. of the CTSV was great. But the lighter weight and nimble chassis of the ATSV was very helpful. Uh, I wish the ATSV sounded better. It just sounds, it's it's just so boring. It's okay. everything about that car is great except for the exhaust note, which is just ugh. And um, did they tell you what V stands for? No, they didn't. It's still a mystery. It's still a mystery. Okay. Uh, how much? Do you know how much this this program? Oh no, sorry. Uh, it comes with it comes with Cadillac owners. Yes. Uh, or anyone who buys a new Cadillac. Uh, I suppose. No, some anyone can... who buys a new Cadillac V series. V series. Sorry, my my mistake. Um, and there was one more question I was going to ask. Something about racing licenses. Do they give you a? Do they give you a certificate of completion? Yeah, you get that, and it, and it counts. I think towards twenty five percent of an SCCA license, it, it counts as an SCCA accredited school. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of cool. That is really cool, and I wonder if they also incorporate some discounts. You some or some if some insurances take that into into consideration, high performance uh, driving lessons or something like that. I have no idea. Insurance is a as we've discovered in the past, a sticky wicket. <laughs> it is. It really is. Um, ben, I'm going to take the I'm going to take the conch from you now, and I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a very similar experience I had in the West Coast over at uh, Vancouver Island Motorsport Park or Motorsport Circuit, um, driving a bunch of Mercedes AMG products. Um, so this is part of the Mercedes Performance Tour, um, which is very similar but also quite different than your Cadillac V Academy. Is it called V Academy? Yes. V Performance Academy. Wait a minute. Similar Academy. but different. So we get uh, a, a lot of driving time with a bunch of different cars, and we get some instruction from from, uh, sorry, from instructing from instruction from racing race instructors. Um, but what is different is that people cannot actually go and purchase this experience. What they do is they kind of tell their dealership that they're interested in doing this, or um, would be interested in maybe an AMG. And the dealership will kind of sign them up, and it's a it's a marketing ta- t- uh, tactic for Mercedes AMG. And um, in case so it's, you didn't, is it not advertised? They have to know about it themselves and ask about it. Not even then, the the dealership might even offer it um, to somebody who's like, I'm not sure about this, or I'm not sure about this car, or I I have a, a normal Mercedes. I'm thinking of moving up into an AMG, but I'm not too sure. And the dealership will the dealership will say. Um, you know, uh, if you're still on the fence, we've got this experience for you, um, and they and they send them to this, which is really interesting. Uh, like I said, a marketing tactic to get some people into new Mercedes AMGs, and that's really interesting because Mercedes actually has been really dominating the Canadian um, high performance vehicle segment. They sell a ton of these things, um, and uh, they're quite proud of that. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that it's being used as a marketing tool. I think Cadillac's using it as a marketing tool too, or they'd like to. One one fact that surprised me was twenty five percent of V owners go to the school. That's a so I don't know if that's a, I don't know what's surprising about that. It I, it sounds like a pretty hefty number considering. Yeah, that's that seems like a huge number of people. I mean, when was the last time twenty five percent of any ownership group did the same thing in a car like? Yeah. That's that's really surprising to me. Uh, and they're, they're running 60 people. It's been around for a year, and they've been running 60 people through it every month. 
So I wonder if they're they're promoting it heavily when it, when they do buy the car, or if they have some paperwork that gets to them that says, you know, congratulations on the new purchase. Don't forget about this um, experience that you you have essentially paid for already. You just need to make your way to Vegas to to do it. Um, in the AMG Performance Tour, we had access to about twelve cars. Um, some of them are very similar. Um, AMG sometimes has. Um, Two models of the, uh, two two different engines in the same car, uh, a 43 AMG, which would include a six-cylinder engine, um, or a 63 version of the car, which would include a V8 in most cases. Um, and I really had a good time with this at this um, performance tour because it allowed me to really understand what the AMG the AMG brand is all about. Now this is weird because. Uh, <laughs> Between you and me, I'm sure everyone would say, you know, AMG is about high performance. But there's so many different high performance cars out there. If you wanted a high performance mid-sized sedan, um, you can get one. Uh, you can get one from a bajil- from at least two different companies. At least when it comes to like, let's say, um, BMW and Cadillac, right? They've got the ATS-V and BMW's got an M3. There's a million of these, a million of these options. So what makes AMG stand out? And um, playing with them on the track really helped. Um, sorted out, and there was something really consistent among um, the cars. And I would say the noise would be the first consistency. You were complaining about the noise of the ATS-V. I'm telling you, every one of these Mercedes AMGs sounded fantastic. It's as if well, they spent. Yes. <laughs> except the E43, which sounds like kind of like nothing. There, you know what? Sometimes it can sound uh, it can sound pretty decent at at high RPM. At least that's what I what I noticed while I was on the racetrack at low. Um, low speeds are just tootling around. It was pretty much non-existent. I think it's also fake engine noise in the E43, if I'm not mistaken. They said they have no noise amplification at all. They actually apparently have a whole group, a whole team of people that is that um, specializes in in the noise engineer engineering or, or the engineering of the noise. Sound engineering. I think it's called sound engineering. Noise engineering. I think that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty nice. I don't uh, think my dad would pay for that degree. <laughs> no. Um, so let me let me let me start with um, pretty much the one of the simpler true AMG cars out there. It's the top of the range of its class, and that's the Mercedes AMG CLA 45. Um, you and I both know the CLA 45 as being one of the entry level Mercedes products, and if I'm going to be honest, it's not one of my favorite cars at all. You mean the it's regular CLA, the CLA, the CLA 250? CLA 250. That's right. Um, I found it to be really quirky, um, really under um, it really under delivered in terms of quality. Um, and it just didn't—it didn't provide that Mercedes feel. The AMG product is fully loaded. It has, you know, there's no dummy buttons on the in the center console, and um, the materials are like, especially on the seats. These are really heavily bolstered bucket racing seats. It's a completely different feeling car altogether, and the engine is a whole other part of that as well. This is apparently one of the most powerful two-liter turbocharged four-cylinder engines on the market. It makes. 375 horsepower and 350 pound-feet of torque, which is kind of impressive. Um, not kind of, just very impressive. It also uses a seven-speed dual-clutch transmission, which is getting more refined from, or at least feels more refined than what I experienced in the regular um, CLA 250. All this horsepower goes to all four wheels. It does zero to 60 in four seconds, which is like muscle car territory. (laughs) And um, putting it on the track, it was really interesting because the car uh, has, as I mentioned, has an all wheel drive uh, train and all wheel drive setup. And um, unlike most 
cars in this class, or most AMGs, this car has a front biased all wheel drive system and can only send up to 50% of the horsepower to the rear wheels. Um, but it was very interesting on the track. It didn't feel like the car was, uh, was, um, like pushing or understeering. It never felt like I couldn't quite twist it into, into a corner I needed it to be. And it was really what I was not expecting from the CLA, which I originally thought was just a, a really poor execution of a, of a Mercedes branded car. Well, I mean, you throw significant amounts of money at a car that wasn't properly developed in the first place, and you fix a lot of the problems. I mean, the issues with the CLA are that it was – I hesitate to use the word cash grab, but I'm going to use the word cash grab. It was a way to sell a brand uh, to a demographic that previously couldn't afford that brand. So now looking at the CLA 45 AMG, which is, I guess, one of the cheaper um, AMGs. I'm not sure how much the C43 costs off the top of my head. But in the U.S., the CLA 45 costs uh, just over $51,000. Um, and at least in this iteration, you can feel comfortable knowing that you've got a pretty high-performance vehicle. Um, and then if you don't like the CLA the CLA's design, you can always go for the GLA, which is essentially the same vehicle, um, but with a razor, a slightly higher suspension and um, a hatchback. So it looks kind of neat. <laughs> the GLA or the CLA? Which one are you are you giving me that? Uh, that I, I'm not interested in either of them, but in I think either it, stylish, style-wise, I think the CLA looks better than the GLA. I agree, I, I agree with you 100%. You know the RS3 is actually more expensive? It's $3,000 more. That's that's tough. You see, I really, really like the RS3. It does have more horsepower, but it's got a five-cylinder engine. Um, and I think it looks sharper uh, all around. Oh, for sure. So, it's and honestly, if I had to pick something in that class, I think I've mentioned it. The, M, the M2 does it for me because it's rear-wheel drive and a manual transmission. And these cars don't offer a manual transmission or rear-wheel drive. And I just like the balanced setup of, uh, of that kind of car but then again the m2 is not a four-door while the rs3 and the cla 45 are so is it even worth comparing to those two i don't know it's it's it's, it's interesting i'm not sure who you know if you're buying an m2 are you cross-shopping the rs3 or are you cross-shopping a cayman yeah i i suppose that's all another option as well it's a it's an affordable two-door sports car um and it really is uh, performance oriented in that in a different way it's not just a bajillion uh, horsepower and, and and zero to sixty times. But it's it's a coupe, right? It's 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 a right. coupe like the M2. Right, right. Um, let's talk about another car in this in this uh, lineup that I was talk uh, that I was really excited to drive. Um, the AMG E63 S, and I think it's called the Formatic Plus. That's oh my the goodness! Name. Yeah. Um, now I think we, me and you, have talked about the E Class in previous podcasts. I think you talked about the 43, which sounded a bit uh, poor. But um, I think me and you also agreed, at least me and my colleagues in, in the office agree, that the E-Class is one of the best vehicles in its class. It's well balanced between price, luxury, and style. Um, the E63 is still capable of looking just as pretty as the normal E-Class. It has all the same luxury uh, appointments as the regular E-Class. But then you add 600 horsepower um, and 627 pound-feet of torque. That's what's found under the hood from a 4-liter twin-turbo V8. That does 0 to 16 three, just over three seconds. I think it's also worth pointing out that that V8 engine is hand-assembled. Yeah. Which the uh, 43 is not. Neither is the um, 
I don't think the CLA AMG is hand assembled either. I think the CLA. Oh wait, no, you're right. So, yeah, it is. Sorry, sorry. It's the, it's the four all the 43s. They're off the shelf with bigger turbos and different programming, but the. Hmm. The 63s, it's, it's it's legit like the old school one person one engine philosophy that used to guide AMG's um, hmm. entire product lineup. This was an unbelievable vehicle, um, and as I mentioned, it has formatic this formatic plus system. Now, in the past, the all wheel drive uh, systems from Mercedes was uh, split. Um, I think something around 60-30 rear to front. Um, or 55, 45. It was a, it was a very interesting balance. It wasn't 100% rear or, or anything like that. And I don't think it ever shifted all of the power uh, to the rear wheels or to the front wheels um, in the way that the CLA could do it all 100% to the front wheels. The E63, however, can shift 100% of the power to the rear wheels, and that's apparently a first for the, for the, the company in this high performance setup. Well, I mean, I guess it's a first, but. This previous AMGs were rear-wheel drive only, so yeah, it's it's kind of kind of like okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's one hundred percent right, and that was actually a really fun thing. Like the old AMGs used to be like um, they used to be like muscle cars. They used to be like turn your tires into dust kind of muscle cars, like that kind of power. And uh, now the 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 modern AMG seem to be about more than just horsepower. It seemed to be about handling and um, control as well. And this car, I'm telling you, had too much power for the little course that we were on. Um, it felt every time we had a straight, we were immediately going right into a corner again. Um, but one of the ele- interesting elements is just how great the brakes are. Since we're putting that much weight, this is a big four-door luxury car. Uh, since we're putting that much weight and that much speed and that much friction on the brakes, these things didn't panic or, or you know, there was never a moment where anyone was sweating um, coming to a stop at all. And I thought that was really impressive. Oh, braking technology has had to get better as cars have gotten heavier, and it's really, really, um, compared to what you could get 10 years ago, it's amazing that you're seeing six-piston calipers on cars now, on street mm-hmm. cars. I mean, it's really overkill. I don't, I don't think, I can't remember the last time I was in a factory performance car that had braking issues on a track um, mm-hmm. th- that wasn't being abused. I've and, been in I've been in some non like, semi performance cars that have had unimpressive braking, but the real deal, the stuff where there's an engineer who's like, yeah, maybe this car should stop. Uh, <laughs> that that stuff's always it, it it holds up. Yeah, and you know what? Like I said, what really blows my mind is like when you get out of it and you look at it and you're like, oh, it's just like a regular E class, and and it can behave like a regular E class. It has just the same cargo space, just the same the, the same amount of appointments inside, um, and, and can be as comfortable as an E-Class thanks to, you know, multi-mode suspension. But the only problem is it costs like two cars, right? Like it, it's $105,000 US. Yeah, it's a lot of money. I mean, you're looking at S-Class money at that point, right? So That's you have to a be, ton of money. You got to be pretty committed to uh, to wanting that performance. Yeah, the E-Class, that E-Class, and that E-Class look, I suppose. Uh, an S-Class always never has to explain itself at a at, in a parking lot. It just has this you know, stance, this presence. And I don't know if the E-Class quite has that yet. But AMGs are certainly getting there with that. They bark every time they turn on. Um, the the noise they make when you when you put your foot down is quite impressive. And they now have the performance to back it up, not just in a straight line, but um, when it comes to grip as well. Um, and the third one that I drove, uh, or I mean, one of the third highlights of the, of the, of the vehicles I drove was the AMG GTR. Now you drove this last month at uh, by the by the Frankfurt Motor Show. Is that where when it was? 
Yeah, well, that was the timing of it, but I, I was actually driving a, uh, I was driving at the Paderborn, in, in Paderborn at a track called Bilsterberg, which is a, a private racetrack built on a uh, British army base. It's a big track from what I understand, right? It's a decent sized track. It, it, it's, I wouldn't call it large, but okay. it's a decent sized track. The one that we, the track we were at is, is much smaller than, than that, uh, what is it, Bilsterberg? I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it properly. Bilsterberg. <laughs> Bilsterberg. It's a bit smaller than Bilsterberg. Um, but I still managed to have a lot of fun with the GTR. And there's a couple of things that I didn't quite pick up with your description of it. It, well, first of all, there's something that you, we, like, I guess we really didn't talk about, which is the styling of the car, which is just outright mean. It's, it's an aggressive looking vehicle. Um, and I had one in that, um, that really Hulk like green paint. It's finish. called a uh, green hell magneto, I think. Alrighty. It's like a, it's like a matte green, um, but not quite matte. It's a, it's, it's sharp looking and the car just looks angry. It does. It looks like it wants to beat you up. It looks like it's going to steal your lunch money. Um, it, it, but the way it drove, um, at least in terms of on the track, it was, um, it was not as, as much of a handful as I thought it would be. Uh, especially when looking at it, looking at the specs, uh, this thing has almost 600 horsepower, 577 horsepower to be exact. Um, and it's a, it's rear wheel drive. Unlike the last two cars I mentioned, it's, it sounds like it's going to be a handful, but when you drove it, when I drove it, man, you could put your throat, you could put your foot down, you know, coming out of a turn way sooner than you think you could. And, uh, it sorts it out. It gets going. I was really, really excited about that. But, you know, like last week, I think, or the week before we were talking about cars that are so good, they lose their personality. This still has that personality. It still has, it still demands respect. And, and like you would want in a car that you're taking to an, a driving school or a driving academy, it allows you to practice what the instructors are telling you on the course without any hesitation. It can do exactly what they're telling you it can do. Um, you just, and, and it, it just allows you to focus on getting around the track faster. Well, it's a raucous car. I mean, it's it's based on a grand touring platform. So uh, even though it's a grand touring car, that's surprisingly light. Mm-hmm. Um, it weighs within 100 pounds of that CLA 45, which is kind of neat. Well, I mean, the CLA 45's got heavy stuff to deal with, like an all-wheel drive system, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it doesn't really have that many exotic materials in it. It's but, tiny. Um, it's it's still this is it's well under four thousand pounds, mm-hmm. and it's uh it, it, the car is legitimately comfortable that you could you know drive it a long distance and then go to the track and have a lot of fun with it. It's it's kind of like we talked about it on the previous episodes. It's the anti nine eleven in the sense that it gives you the same. It's it's aimed at the same demo as the nine eleven in terms of what people are looking for. You know, mm-hmm. a daily driver that's very fast, mm-hmm. but it's it's extroverted. And it's loud, and I mean, you can get it in that crazy green color. I mean, 911s are fairly anonymous at this point. It is super, it, and it's loud. It's loud in terms of design. It's loud in terms of actual volume. It's loud even on the inside. It has a ton of um, exotic materials. It's loud in terms of performance. I, I, I actually really enjoyed my time with this vehicle, and I just was not expecting it. I was expecting to be nervous. I was expecting to be scared um, uh, of it, and not at all. It felt. Um, it felt fantastic and I never wanted to, I didn't want to walk away from it. You know what I mean? There was never a moment when I was like, yeah, okay, I'll give that up now. It was, it sounded great. It was fun to watch ripping around the track. It was fun to be in that cockpit. There was never, and 
none of the instructors had any concerns putting us any in any of those cards. You know, there's never a moment where they're like, oh, you know, keep it out of, uh, you know, as you mentioned, sport mode or sport plus mode. Don't you don't have to worry about that too much. Um, all they said was it's a little damp out there, which it was. So, you know, keep be awake. And um, the car was was really accommodating and it allowed you to have fun on the track, learn how to get better. And that's something that um, I think is, is a pretty big success. It's also, I think, the only big coupe that's out there right now, the only GT high-performance coupe that's out there right now that's not all-wheel drive. That is kind of that is kind of odd, isn't it? I mean, you can get rear-wheel drive versions of the 911, obviously, mm-hmm. but they're the lower-level versions without you know the insane horsepower that the turbo has. The, mm-hmm. the, so in, in, if you're looking at an R8, it also has all-wheel drive. If you're looking at a Bentley, it also has all-wheel drive. It's just everything that's big, two doors, and high performance seems to come with all-wheel drive these days, except for this car. I mean, there's also the Corvette C06, but that's in a different, uh, I think, a different category in terms of luxury and probably a different fire, mm-hmm. uh, even though they have similar performance. And okay. now, that the Vi- now that the Viper's gone, I mean, the Viper was never really a GT car because it didn't have that comfort, comfortable mile-eating personality. But uh, Mercedes, the, this this is as close as Mercedes would ever get, modern Mercedes would ever get to building a Viper. Mm-hmm. It has that similar, you're sitting kind of over the rear wheels feel. Uh, and it's, it's similar wheelbase, I believe, and definitely similar power. So it's 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 a bit of an anomaly. So um, let me talk about the price. I don't know if I mentioned the price. Actually, I want to go back to what you mentioned. You said uh, of the cars, you said Porsche, you said the Porsche 911 um, Turbo. You said the Audi R8 and the Bentley. That's a Continental GT. Yeah. Aren't those all owned? Aren't those all made by companies that are parent corporation are the same? Aren't they all? <laughs> yes, they are. So I mean, I can see why why those ones would be very similar. But you're right. Like the Nissan. But the M6. The, I mean, the M6 is dead now, isn't it? The M6, I believe, is dead. I think. I think you can only get the sedan, the right. M6 sedan, the uh, Gran, Tur- Gran Turismo version. And then the only thing that would pro- compete with this Mercedes in terms of price, 157 US. Um, what that would be that weird BMW, I, the the BMW i8. And holy cow, no. I would take an AMG GTR over a BMW i8. The, there's another vehicle <laughs> that I think is is competitive to this car, but it's also all-wheel drive, and that would be the F-Type R. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I was actually going all the way to thinking all the way to exotics, and I think the entry. What does the entry level McLaren start at? Around two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's that's um, I that's, guess that's, that's too far off. No one's driving a McLaren to work every day. It's it's not. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who do, but that's a really ostentatious thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You know, I, I mean, this car is this car is this car is ostentatious, but a McLaren is something else. <laughs> at least I think you can park an AMG GTR in, in a in a in a public like mall and not worry about that. I guess all malls are public in some way or another. <laughs> where are you? Where you, do you do private shopping? <laughs> yeah, I mean private shopping is a thing. I'm just wondering if it's a Sammy thing. It's not a Sammy thing, not yet. No. Um, I, I, there were so many, there were so many great moments, um, at this, at this track. Uh, I should also mention, I drove the S-Class Coupe. This is a car that had massage seats as well as a massive V8 engine. Um, I drove the SL563 AMG as well, which is a convertible. And yes, I drove it top down in about 10 degrees, (laughs) 10 degree weather because it has a bajillion heating functions. It has heated seat, uh, heated steering wheel, heated seats. It had 
uh, heated armrest. It had um, an air scarf, which blows hot air across your neck so that you stay it's warm. Never, I like the idea of the air scarf, but it's never warm enough. Like, I think what I want is like a like an air parka where <laughs> yeah. it's just like – it's. Uh, I don't know if that's possible. Or maybe like something that comes out of the armrest and injects me with like a solution of some liquid that keeps warm, me warm inside. Warm liquid, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we already have the perfume, so why not the why not the injection? We also had the GLE 63, which is a big SUV, and um, this was actually behind, this was the the vehicle that was lined up behind the GTR every time. And uh, on the straights, you could you could keep up with the AMG GTR, and in this in the in the corners, you'd have to apply a little bit more braking in the in the GLE to to get it around. But it was also quite capable as well. So well, I, was I really, mean, with a proper driver, there's no way the GLA would keep up, would keep up with the AMG. GT. Well, at least I, there's I, on, no on this way. small on this small course, it seemed like it was um, it was capable in some in there's, some places. That's there's sure. a thousand pounds between those cars. It was. I'm telling you, it was something else. And what Mercedes has done with with not more than just sticking these engines in their car, which is what they used to be known for. They they used to be known for just sticking engines in cars. Um, I think and. Not to say that that's a bad thing. These are still hand-built engines. Um, and now they have a little bit more going for them than just pure horsepower. Um, well, I, I don't know. I, I think I think AMG has been building complete cars for quite a while now. Really? Yes. Since when? At least a decade, if not 15 years. Uh, I, don't, I can't. I think you, if you go back to the 80s and you're looking at cars like the Hammer, I think that that's, that's more of the big engine in a, in a regular car kind of deal. But when you start looking at like the 190s that were that were being developed and and AMG has a, a decent racing history as well, it's it, they know what they're doing when it comes to vehicle dynamics. Was the 190e an AMG? The, I believe there were AMG models that were made. Okay. All right. AMG, if if not from the factory, then AMG tuned models were available. All right. Um. Well, I maybe I I have less history to I've studied less history on the brand and and the production vehicles have always seemed a little a little off in comparison to some of their competitors, um, but I'm I'm pretty satisfied with what they've got now and I'm surprised. But like you, I prefer low weight, low horsepower cars. Um, that makes me that makes me feel like I'm really having as much fun as I can. But uh, some of these cars provide um, quite the put put right put quite the smile on your face. Um. Anything else you want to add? What uh, what else is going on this week for you? Nothing much this week, really. I, I've been I was at the track pretty much all week. Like I said, I got back yesterday. Uh, but next week, I'm going to be I'm actually going back to Vegas to drive the next generation Hyundai Accent. And when I come home, I'm going to have the Nissan Micra, which I picked up today. It is a lot more fun than I thought it would be, and I'm, I'm excited to kind of drive that some more. And I also have a Civic Type R that will be waiting for me when I come home. That's awesome. And uh, this Accent, it'll be fun to talk about the Accent because um, I had driven the Rio just a couple of, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, maybe more, more of a month now. And uh, it'll be fun to compare notes, and especially since you have the Micra, which is um, a Canadian-only vehicle, very affordable. Um, I can't wait to talk to you about that. Next week, I myself will have um, um, something a little bit more mainstream than the cars we drove this week. The I've got the Toyota Camry, the brand new Toyota Camry, and as well as a new generation or the current generation, next generation, 2018 Hyundai Sonata, <laughs> um, which we'll com- I'll compare the two, and uh, it'll be. It'll be a good time, I think, uh, for, for those who are in the market for a midsize sedan or a subcompact. 
And uh, anyone who, in the meantime, wants to check out some of our past podcasts, you can do that at unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. They're all there. You can also find us on iTunes and Google Play Music. There's links on our website, or you can just search for us. It's up to you how you want to do it. Um, We're also on Facebook, and you can get us at Unnamed Automotive Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to be a little bit more personal, feel free to send either Ben or I uh, a tweet. You can do that. I'm at Sammy underscore huh. And Ben is at uh, Ben. Uh, sorry, at Hunting Benjamin. Uh, <sighs> we always look forward to hearing from you guys. And uh, if you have any feedback or any thoughts, or if you agree with me or disagree with Ben about um, what your what our AMG thoughts were, or if you've even been to one of these performance schools, let us know about it. We want to hear your thoughts. Um, but for the meantime, I'm going to say thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye, everybody.